Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the next uh, Star Trek Discovery podcast here at Trek Nababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. So, episode three, the the real pilot, because apparently that was a fake pilot. Uh, context is for kings. Uh, I'll st- I'm going to start by saying I I liked it. I can t- I kind of ended where I began um, of uh, the, sh- the the fundamentals of the show are basically there, and I remain intrigued to watch week to week. Um, that the sh- I was worried, especially after uh, the comment that uh, John had made last week uh, for our first review, that the producers were talking about the show consciously going darker and certain things. Like I, I didn't get a feeling that's what was happening. Yeah, um, I liked it. I liked it less uh, than the first two. It's, you know, actually, it's a mixed reaction. There are things that I like more, significantly more. But there were a few standout things that I liked significantly less. Um, I, I'm still on board. I still want to watch it. Uh, I, I found the characters remained engaging, and I liked the new characters that were introduced. Uh, but there, I, I do have a sense of uh, rising sort of reservation or foreboding. Um, I mean, do you want to just dive into the writing? Yeah, uh, yeah so. I just, um, I mean, I'll start with my my problems, and I'm sure it's your problem too, um, the leaning on the prequel nature. If they had left it, if they had not revisited um, Sarek again, or by, you know, Association Amanda, I would have not been bothered. I'm largely pretending it's not a prequel. Unless they make me think about the fact it's a prequel, I'm just pretending this show takes place 100 years in the future, and it becomes a substantially better show. Um, And what really got me, and I think the kind of... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, the perfect example of the problem is that last scene at the end. The scene was otherwise working. I kind of like that Burnham's one human taste is Alice in Wonderland. It, they used, they incorporated it well into the episode. I liked all that. When she asks what, when the other ensign whose name escapes me, um, uh, Lily, Tilly, ensign. Tilly, something. And she's like, well, what was her name? That's a really inorganic question to ask. If someone were describing their life with their foster parents, my first question is, what are their given names? So I can like run their background checks or something like it just, it was a question des- reverse engineered to get her to say the name Amanda rather than even, I mean, just from a pure technical writing standpoint, that was a really ham-fisted way to introduce that piece of information. And it, and it does make me feel like they're doubling down on the prequel nature of it. And that does, that does concern me. I am there because it, it just, especially given the, the like, Sarek's whole relationship with his son seems to be this axis of not being able to accept fully his humanity or his decision to join Starfleet when he apparently has a fully human child who joins Starfleet that we, one, never knew about. Um, but aside from that, it just... it it They're going to have to land this dismount literally flawlessly for me to think that this was not just a terrible idea where someone thought, hey, let's reference characters the other fans will know and they'll think it's great without realizing who the hell they're talking about. We will question it to death. So uh, for me, it was just, it's, 
they're they keep flagging that it's a prequel with stuff like this and it makes me nervous if they were just saying it is set in this time larger questions of how it incorporates itself into the established continuity are best left to philosophers um i could live with that i wouldn't i I mean it wouldn't make me happy but it wouldn't make me sad per se this makes me worried and i'm i'm there with you well so you know i I agree on the amanda thing I, i found the alice in wonderland quotes just kind of strange you know it's like there was action and stuff going on at the same time so it it didn't really matter it was just yeah it was like it's like we need to build up to a reveal but it wasn't really a reveal you know we already knew that sark was her mentor uh so it you know it i don't know um my my two biggest problems with the episode did you know one of them uh did definitely hinge on the prequel nature it was the mushroom drive for lack of a better term (laughs) Uh, some sort of fungal technology sorry quantum fungal technology that uh will allow for near instantaneous travel across vast possibly intergalactic distance yeah all i could think of when she was doing the little like jump cuts was they invented the iconian gateways which well so yeah definitely and that's something that's a thought that, of course, occurred to you and I both instantaneously and maybe, you know, other dedicated fans. Um, the issues are two. One is this show says specifically, and the producers have said specifically, that this show is set 10 years before TOS. And so one of two things has to happen. Either this apparently you know momentous incredibly huge plot point of this whole series you know because it was presented as this is the thing that's going to motivate us you know for at least the first season if not the whole series right and it could change human existence either it has to disappear completely before you know captain kirk steps foot on the enterprise uh and also never be referenced again in any of the future continuity you know star trek series uh or it has to like just change continuity and we're just in another like offshoot universe or something which there are certainly things that uh nitpickers even more dedicated to picking nits than us uh, have pointed out you know like they have shuttles that can go at warp speed now for some reason uh you know stuff like that that i don't care about so much this i care about because the fundamental premise of the show of the, the franchise is that they have warp ships that are capable of taking them across vast distances but not instantaneously and so it's horatio hornblower in space right you know it's it's like it's a naval sort of sea exploration story in space and we explore humanity in that way okay if you if you suddenly introduce a, a drastically different form of transportation that fundamentally alters the the timing and the lifespan and you know all, all these sorts of things uh it, it's it's a different show it's a different franchise right 
Yeah. So I mean, it, it, either they've got to they've got to dispense with it somehow, which seems like it can't possibly. Like you, I, you know, actually, like you said, I suppose I could envision, I could imagine some perfect way of resolving the plot thread, the fungal plot thread, uh, which satisfies all requirements, right? Which <laughs> makes it a secret. I mean, I'll give him the Emmy myself. I'll, 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 yeah. I'll melt down my cookware to make it. I just, um, if they can do that. I mean, it even... It, it just underscores how much cleaner this would be if they had just said it a hundred years in the future. I could yeah. accept that a federation a century more advanced was on the cusp of that technology. Yeah, I would have literally zero problems if it weren't. Like, and as far and as far as technobabble explanations, their explanation of you know fungal transport is is pseudosciency and artsy enough as to you know describe warp travel it kind of it you know like listening to the traveler explain warp theory is no less or more you know mushy than what uh uh stubens stem stamen stamel <laughs> stamets stamets there we go it's gonna take me a second to learn these people's names um uh describing his one so i mean I disagree on that. I found this to be more mushy uh, to its detriment. I I think we're just used to warp. I think I think I think we've I think it's been more thoroughly explored, and we've kind of, as needed, papered over any sort of physical or technical mushiness no, in the presentation. No. I disagree because the fundamental concept of warp is just going really really fast. Okay, like yes. They have to explain why, you know, it doesn't involve relativistic effects and that they invent this whole subspace thing to, to, you know, sort of paper over that. But the fundamental idea is just going really, really fast. This is like, um, there's like this network of something that's like fungus, but it can't really be fungus, right? That somehow permeates the whole universe the way that like a fungal web permeates a forest uh and it's also involved in panspermia like he, he slipped that word in there and if you know for those who don't know panspermia is the notion that within a solar system or even uh between nearby solar systems uh you can have biological or biological precursor material uh in asteroids or comets that go from planet to planet or even star system to star system and seed them with the beginnings of life. And so I don't know kind of what the fuck Stamets was talking about there. Like, so is the fungus responsible for life in the universe too? But also it somehow violates relative... I don't know. Like, it didn't make any fucking sense. Like, I got the metaphor that it's this web... Yeah, and I'm happy to give them time to, to develop it. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does really, it's like, you're right. It not only has to not work, it has to be the world's best kept secret. Like, is the series finale going to be them all dying and taking yeah. the secret to their graves? Like, they're having their brains wiped or something. I presume these, you know, black badged people are going to be involved. Like, maybe they're part of Section 31, and, you know, who knows, right? Oh, I did it, love I did love Black Alert. That that was, I mean, it it's a color. 
There's an alert. It's an alert we haven't done before. We've taken red, yellow, green, and blue already. I mean, it. You know, we're running out of primary colors. Um, this is like uh, black mold or something. I, I just I didn't understand. Uh, yeah. The effects are great, you know. And I mean, the, the like, production budget cool. is not is not dicking around here. It was a cool effect, and um, all right, I, I think we, I think we've kind of exhausted the topic of, or at least as much as we can in one episode. Well, anyway, yeah. If if it is the same technology by which the Iconians have become demons of air and darkness, uh, that would please me to some degree because it would actually reference existing continuity and maybe somehow could explain why no one in the universe has ever heard of this or mentioned it until season two of TNG at the earliest. Uh, but it, it's just like, it just seems like they're creating problems for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but telling, good stories yeah that, i mean that's the question we've had since the beginning you seem to be painting yourself into a corner two corners th- four corners the you know eight corners of a cube by putting yourself in this time and place so i like i said whenever possible i just pretend it's not a prequel because it makes my brain hurt less um yeah so i like I, but i was interested and i was yeah pleased that there was this science fiction-y kind of element and you know i i'm hopeful on the one hand that like this thing will precipitate the kinds of star trek stories that i really want which are you know wild and crazy new things new aliens new technologies you know like exploring boundaries like I, i don't really give a shit about war stories to be frank you know I appreciate when they're done well, but it's not like my my modus operandi, you know, for being a Star Trek fan. It's not it's not what I want generally, you know. Like I already have Game of Thrones, you know. I don't need Star Trek to be Game of Thrones. I don't need it to be, you know, a war story. So I was pleased that there was this sciency element that was introduced. I was just, you know very very nervous about the implications of what they chose and the context in which they put it uh, so to speak yeah i get that i don't mind a war story if it's well done it's it's a story like any other and you can do it badly or do it well um aside from the prequel issues i think the episode largely works and uh it kind of when they initially announced that they were focusing on a first officer and not a captain it wasn't like I was outraged. I was skeptical, given that a captain has always been, for better or for worse, the gravitational center of each of the franchises. Uh, so it's, I mean, maybe Deep Space Nine was the furthest from that with stuff like, you know, Garrick or Quark, but... Um, he was still the commanding officer. Yeah, and like, yeah. So I have to say, I actually think it serves the story really well because if the focus were Lorca... It would be he's the renegade captain and Burnham is his, uh, you know, angel on his shoulder foil. By focusing the story on Burnham, it keeps the focus on Star Trek's ethos, which I actually was one of my favorite uh, lines in the episode when she kind of explains 
what she views as Federation philosophy and why she won't abandon it. And even her actions that led to her imprisonment were her best attempt to keep those values. So like that, that speech to Lorca was great. It was like, this is what I think Into Darkness was trying to do with its like Klingon story, but it hadn't done any of the bona fides to make the Federation feel like that place. So none of those elements came through here. They did. And even the, even this kind of like a double dip of a pilot kind of starts to make sense. If all of Burnham's um, rebellion or mutiny was done through flashback or implication and not at the start, I might've found that speech a little ham fisted and out of nowhere, but the three kind of episode burn to get to that point actually makes it work for me largely. Um, We've gotten well, enough. I liked, um, I liked his response to it too, which is like, you know what, I get it, you know, like you, I, I mean, so it's sort of so like the the pull quote for the episode is, uh, universal law is for lackeys and context is for kings, right? You know, and so naturally as a philosopher, I was pleased by that. You know, any any mention of universal law, you know, pleases me. But it worked in the context of the episode. You know, he recognizes in her someone who is willing to make similar tough choices that don't necessarily conform to uh, universally accepted ethical standards in the service of a higher standard, you know, like the greater good, right? Yeah. In the context of the greater good, having a horrible monster creature is okay. And in the context of the greater good, you know, starting a war to prevent a bigger war is okay, right? You know, so I, I liked that. Speaking of the horrible monster creature, that was my second big problem with the episode. It was like a five-minute fucking J.J. Abrams scene. Like, it was the most Abrams thing that ever Abrams I uh, I was okay with it largely because it was five minutes. Um, that Actually, that whole sequence largely worked for me I, I i i was making notes and my my note was um when they went to the event horizon i scratched out the words event horizon and then w- wrote the glen um because it was like literally what this this was event horizon they used a new spatial folding form of transportation and brought something back yeah. um which but yeah. that said it worked. I mean, the, well, I, I liked the the eeriness. I liked the like inside out bodies. That was certainly a new standard of gruesomeness for franchise. And it was it was well played. Like it was just gruesome enough. Like it didn't linger. It wasn't gratuitous. It was super upsetting. Yeah. Um. And then the chase sequence lasted, I think, precisely as long as it needed to. Um. I it just. I don't understand why it had to be there. Like. I, I don't understand what killed these people. I don't understand what the monster has to do with it. I don't understand. I, granted, it may be explained, you know, what role apparently this monster has to play in Captain Lorca's grand scheme, right? But it just, I, I just wanted the chase to be over and to have things explained. It's, I ceased being thrilled after about minute one and started being annoyed and wanted the story to move on right i get that i i i'm trying to i'm trying to be more like you know i think there's room for action in star trek i think you can do it well and i I don't think it got belabored and i think it built up enough atmosphere in advance um 
And I'd say I can't. They're. I think they're doing a good job with a lot of the alien life. Most of the aliens we've seen so far, other than like named cast members, have been fairly non-human. Like like the you know electric bugs and like I, I kind of like that they're using their budget to push what aliens can be. Enterprise did this to some extent with the Zindi, and I like that they're kind of taking it the step further that the current tech allows them. I'm I'm yeah. fine with that. I mean, it was. It wasn't my favorite scene, but I, uh, it, it was short enough to not pull me out uh, too badly. Uh, be- beyond that, I think the character work was really good. I re- I've really come to like Saru. I thought he would be like a little too annoying, Nebishi, um, in the opening minutes of uh, Vulcan Hello, but he's really grown on me. He might be my favorite character after Burnham at this point. Um, there's a they've given him like. A compassionate uh, depth to go with the saucy sort of edge. You know, his scene with Burnham was really good. Yeah, um, I, I liked their interaction, and he so he he cares about her, but he is extremely uh, he has extreme reservations about her as a person, which are completely justified. I have to say, she makes bad choices. You know, like. She she screws up. She has screwed up a lot of things in these three episodes, uh, you know. And at the, I like, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm saying it as a good thing. I like that. I like that she screws up, and I like that the other characters aren't just like kowtowing to her shit because she's the lead character of the show, right? Yeah. Um, you know, their responses read perfectly. Uh, reasonably and justifiably to me you know his his approach is you know what you fucked up and your captain died and I'm not going to let you do it here because I've got a captain and I I get the feeling that his character really believes he's bought in to you know sort of Lorca's mission Mm. his his approach Uh, but then Stamets you know distrusts her uh, in part because he wants to be in charge of his own little fiefdom, you know, like he wants to be a scientist and he finds uh, Lorca to be an ogre, you know, and he resents the fact that he's pushing Burnham on him. Right. And so it all like the hallmark of good writing is that the characters have traits that are consistent and the drama flows from those traits instead of the other way around. Right. And I think they're they're doing a fabulous job creating characters. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it, it's why I'm willing to give a kind of wide berth to the prequel plot problems because I'm kind of just enjoying watching these people interact. Like I would watch like you know at some point, uh, assuming the Star Trek writing has not gotten too far from its roots, there's going to be an episode where Burnham and Saru get stranded on a planet together, or stranded in a shuttle together, and they have some tense conflict resolution moment and it's going to be a great episode um i liked that the characters all had agendas and those agendas you know coincided or conflicted um i'm curious to see where it goes uh speaking of uh plot points driving character traits and not the other way around i found the line about Lorca needing to adjust slowly to light changes to be the precise kind of character trait that's going to be completely forgotten about until it's a major plot point in an episode 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that was pointless <laughs> in the extreme. Yeah, like when they're standing watching the Glen be blown up, I'm like, shouldn't that like overload your retinas or something? Um, I'm curious what kind of injury would do that too. That would leave you like with permanent light sensitivity. Yeah. Um. So speaking of Captain Lorca, uh, I I like how compartmentalized and complex he seems to be. You know, he wants to win the war, but he also wants to push, <coughs> apparently, what I mean, maybe he's lying to Burnham, but he, he seems to want to push, you know, this scientific, uh, you know, discovery agenda as well. And sometimes those things are in conflict and sometimes they're not. And he's, you know, sort of manipulative and uh, he's willing to use people as tools to achieve what he views as the greater good. And I like that. I like that. It, I, it'll be interesting to see how Federation, how Starfleet he is, right? Uh, or whether he thinks he's, you know, serving the greater interests. Uh, you know, so in a lot of ways, that's kind of like uh, what was Director Sloan or something. Well, I was thinking of like uh, just the TOS episodes that are always uh, Kirk going up against a fallen Starfleet captain, and he seems like a yeah. prime candidate for that treatment. Yeah, and that would certainly be an interesting story. I don't know how you would prevent that from derailing the show. Maybe you'd have Burnham pull him back from it or something, you know. But yeah, it would it would be an interesting conflict. So I, I'm into the character. I'm interested in the character. I can't say I love. Like I think he's. British or Scottish or something, and there's just something a little off about the way he delivers uh, dialogue that makes it kind of difficult to understand. And this is not a show problem, but CBS All Access, at least for me, on the Fire Stick, the subtitles are oh, like are like in size six font. Yeah, yeah, they're like a third of the size of the screen. Oh, are yours really small? Yeah, mine are huge. Mine are mine are microscopic. I'm watching it on the PS4 app, and it's like literally, and it's center, and it's it's like right bottom corner instead of center. Um, I don't, and I gotta say the sound, and maybe it's just the my sound setup, but like I found a lot of some, especially in the stuff on the Glen, the uh, no, background noise was swallowing a lot of dialogue. I really oh, needed those subtitles. Just, no, it's not just you. The the whole show is hard to follow in terms of dialogue and you know the actor makes it worse because he he just like kind of like trails off in this growly mumble uh every every line gets sort of swallowed in his phlegmatic delivery or something so it's uh yeah (laughs) i wish the subtitles were smaller it's also that they don't by by a about two thirds of the way through the episode, they weren't keeping up. The very sink, well. yeah, the sink was off. I noticed that. Um, are your ads really la- like jagged a little? It was, it was like the early days of Hulu, where like a flash <laughs> ad would like pause itself, and it wasn't your connection. It was just like some other issue, and like I'm like, ooh, you better get these ads right because if you're gonna make me watch ads, they better be Hulu seamless at this point because Hulu's really f- upped their game, and now they don't, you know. No, on the, on the Fire Stick. Uh, the ads are, you know, at the same level of quality as something like current Hulu. Um, you know, they're they're well produced. 
the sound levels are generally okay. The video doesn't stutter. Uh, everything seems okay on that end. Um, yeah. So, I mean, these, these are issues that are not integral to the show, but, of course, we have no fucking choice. Right. You, you made us watch it this way. You better not screw it up. I, I wish. <laughs> I wish. The, the app on the Amazon Fire Stick had... Like, it's on and off. Those are the only two options for the subtitles. And so... Yeah, me too. I get, I get annoyed with them blocking stuff on the screen. And there's, there's no transparency options. There's nothing. Just on and off. So it's like a giant black box that's covering, you know, at least 20% of the screen. Even for a single line of dialogue. It's, uh, like, I'm not that blind. It's My eyesight is not the problem. It's the fact that the show is mixed in a way that it's hard to understand dialogue. You know? And it's the pilot, and so everything being noisy and you know, like, like I want to remember characters' names, guys. You know, can you give me a quiet scene where you just deliver all the information so I can you know, like keep it in my head, right? Like you don't have to have an explosion every three goddamn seconds. Um, I'm venting a little. The show is obviously not that bad. Uh, it's certainly, you know, nowhere as frenetic as any of the three Abrams movies. Uh, there are quiet moments. The pacing is good. You know, like they have quiet conversations, like the Burnham Saru conversation, right? Yeah. And like the, the Burnham Lorca conversation. Um, so, Kevin, tell me how you felt about uh, Stamets. I got the impression that he annoyed you. Um, between him and Tilly and Burnham to a certain extent, though less annoyingly so, um, it feels like the shorthand that all gifted scientists are somewhere on the autism spectrum. And I find that to just be the laziest writing. I understand CBS has made some money off of Sheldon and Big Bang, but it, it's just, it's the latest, it, it's just like, you know, House or every iteration of Sherlock Holmes. It's just, I find it to be extraordinarily lazy to make, to portray all intelligent people especially in a hard stem field as not just like socially awkward not shy not somewhat bit of a loner but like actual identifiable pathology i i just i, I find it to be a shortcut to character work for a smart person and i just once i want someone to be like walk onto screen and be like i have three phds in advanced quantum physics and i'm a hugger like yeah. just it, I and I don't know something turned me off about Stamets in his early portrayal maybe he was so good at being a dick to Burnham that it made me reflexively dislike him since I like Burnham so much by the end of the episode I'm I, I think it'll level out I kind of have the same problem with Tilly where it's like oh dear good the social like the like she's not just awkward she's she verges on some sort of like Disorder, where it's like you you can't handle like bed sheets, like it it, it just it, it makes it a little hard to connect to the characters. I find those kind of traits to be so like two dimensionally annoying, um, and it's almost like the writers don't know how to write a young. It's it's almost like Wesley Crusher times a billion, where it's like you can be a socially and emotionally well-adjusted, very intelligent person. I flatter myself to think that I'm somewhere in that neighborhood, um, but it's just like it. I, and maybe it's the pilot, maybe everything's kind of cranked up higher and it'll mellow out once the actors hit a groove. But it was a little hard for me to connect with 
uh, with Anthony Rapp's character for most of the episode. And and also a piece of dialogue really snagged me in that way that anno- we've talked about this before, the uh, telling versus showing thing. When the holographic head of his friend declared we've been friends for years, nothing about the way you two were interacting and like content or tone indicated you were friends, even like frenemies or friends with the competition or just coworkers of longstanding. It was like, we're friends because it says right here in the script, we're friends. And normally that kind of fine grained character work is something Star Trek can be really good at so it just kind of it all it all hit me at once in a slightly off way and and hey Patrick Stewart started the show as a cranky Frenchman before me, before mellowing into British poet explorer so it it, it it's there I'm sure it'll it, it, I don't know it just I had a bit of a hard time connecting with uh with all the engineering characters honestly yeah I understand um I, I kind of liked him I, I get your reservations and think it could go south, uh, but um, I, I just like the fact that there was tension and tension yeah. that made sense between characters. I think Stamets is going to be the first openly gay uh, crew member in a, a Trek show anyway. Uh, obviously, they made John Cho gay and beyond. Um I just I recall seeing his picture uh, next to the the mention of that without any. Well, I think break. Anthony Rapp is super gay because uh, you know in Rent, and I think he had to be gay to be in Rent. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, and you know what else bothered me? I'm not sure if he has the techno babble down. And maybe it's because the techno babble was strained even by Star Trek standards. But when they were talking about like we got when they kept talking about whatever how far they had gotten, where it's like we're twenty four Steinmans or whatever. I don't remember the word. Uh, yeah. Spirals, spearmans, spearmints. And I was like, you literally sound like you're talking about the game from the game. Um. So and so again, I, I mean, different. You know, Brent Spiner could do it. Lavar Burton can do it. Um, Kate Mulgrew can do it. Um, who else? Uh, Leonard Nimoy can obviously do it. But like Roxanne, Roxanne Dawson is a master. Jerry Ryan could handle it. The the um, Robert Picardo. There's a there's an art to Treknobabble, and maybe it's because the writing itself underpinning it was was extreme even by Star Trek standards. But I I don't have the sense of the kind of effortless facility with that dialogue that I like at least the chief engineer to have. But I will, I, like I said, it's, I, I did have to remind myself once or twice, this is a pilot. Um, they get it. A TV show is a living organic thing and it gets to make changes as it goes. It's not like a book where you can go back and edit it to like make everything conform from the jump. And I appreciate that. And I sat through some awkward characterizations uh, in the early seasons of next gen DS nine and a little bit of Voyager if we count Neelix as that problem. So, like, I'm happy to let a character mellow and alter based on the actor's strengths and weaknesses and the writer's hitting a groove. I'm more than happy. I'll say, I'll say this thus far, and I think it's the best compliment I can pay Discovery at this point. I have nowhere, we have not encountered any episode as bad that Next Gen or DS9 have thrown out by episode three. <laughs> and... Um. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go for granted. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, Tilly, the redheaded girl. 
again, if she if she just mellows out a little, if they find a way to pitch her awkwardness a little less stere- uh, as like stereotype nerd kabuki, I I might be able to click with her. Um, but her- yeah, my question is really though, given the apparently extremely rigid nature of this serialized storyline, uh, whether they do have wiggle room with these characters. Now, hopefully they do, but it could be that they don't. And mm-hmm. what we see in episode three is what we get in episode 10 uh, because it's all like written out already, right? Who knows? Uh, I guess we'll find out. Um, yep. What do you think about the, the ship? Um, I actually ended up, uh, I've liked it since, since, they, since they teased it. Because um, I believe I believe it's gone some you know detail work and some prettying up since those early promo shots. But I was kind of intrigued by the basic design. It it, it is of a piece with uh, Starfleet design. You know, saucer section, drive section, engines. It looks somewhere between you know a Constitution class and a and the NX uh, Enterprise. I, I like that. I kind of like the solid body. I don't know why. Normally I like that kind of very graceful neck, but somehow the like flattened design is really doing it for me. Uh, and not just yeah, like... I don't mind it. Uh, it's basically a, um, a take on the concept art that was done for... Uh, phase two. Phase two and then the movie. Um, and I think some of that concept art was done by the uh, Star Wars painter. Well, I got to say, I, I, I had read that, that it, um, I, I, and I've seen some stuff from Phase 2 and all of the documentaries yeah, I've watched. Um, I kind of like that it references this unproduced piece of Star Trek. Like, that's like the kind of tickling fan service that actually feels good because it's like, oh, here's this reference to something only a diehard fan would know, but it doesn't impact the story in any other way it's not required it doesn't really change anything it just feels like this is a piece of star trek because it's been an unproduced piece of star trek for 30 years so i I kind of i almost like that it references or that they drew inspiration from this because i it does lend credence to the idea that they are at least attempting to pull from the entire uh, franchise, like they're attempting to be a piece of that entire franchise to the extent that they are dusting off stuff in the attic uh, that never got made. I, I liked that. Um, I do. Yeah, I thought it looked cool. Um, I, I thought the sets that we were given uh, and the the general look at hallways and stuff, it feels way more like a real place than you know the hairdryer enterprise. Oh, I agree. Um, I love the shuttle bay. The, the shuttle bay had a sense of um, size that um, I think even at not none of the other TV series quite managed. Like, um, and they also managed to make the shuttle bay a huge part of the aft of the ship without curiously making it like the entire, like on yeah. the Kelvin when it was like the literally the entire drive section. Well, uh, and engineering wasn't like the size of CERN in Switzerland. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that was a good thing too. There were no breweries. I yeah, I, I would say it, it it felt of a piece with the Enterprise um, engine room, that kind of you know rectangular metal room, which puts it somewhere between the engine room and Enterprise and the engine room and Star Trek in the original series. Though obviously, um, 
and I even kind of I even liked I even read that the the plexiglass room where they do the Iconian gateway stuff kind of felt like a callback to the engine room uh, in the refit constitution class, like in Star Trek two, where, where Spock yep. dies. Like it felt like, okay, everything in this engine room does in fact have a visual thematic connection to some other piece of Star Trek. And it looks like a real place where real people do work all day. Even like um, when she puts that disc in the, um, uh, in her computer station, it looked like a cross between the, um, you know, plastic square from the original series and the kind of lucite transparency of an isolinear chip. So even that, like, it felt like a modern take on a Star Trek piece. And design decisions like that suit me fine. Like, that's like the little stuff that, you know, if it looks more advanced now, well, it's always going to look more advanced because we are we are more advanced than the original series. Like, I, I, I appreciate that. So that felt like good fan service because it was like everything here felt in the in the genus of star trek and that i did like uh, my only complaint about the ship itself is the that kind of like um how the saucer is like two rings connected by like what look like three or four crossover bridges yeah. that just seems like one of those things that always looks cooler on paper than would ever be practicable like all you've done is one lose a ton of space for no reason and create like four or five really fatal uh, failure points on your ship. Like instead of your yeah. saucer being this one contiguous, easily repairable thing, it is now this very complicated like lattice work. And that just seems like a poor design decision, but I can let it go. I, th I think it looks cool. Yeah, no, I generally agree. Uh, it feels more like a real place uh, than a lot of, recent stuff has felt maybe even more so that I don't know if I can say this yet but possibly more so than the sovereign class in the movies uh, possibly yeah I mean that's that's a little harder given that we just never spent the amount of time or number of spaces on the sovereign class so it's a it's like a I think it's a little apples and oranges but I, t I take your meaning well yeah I mean I, I'm not bagging on the sovereign class I think it's a very nice design and i just wish we had gotten more of it you know like so that i could really get the feel for it and i feel like it kind of subtly changed over the the three movies was it three or two three contact first contact insurrection yeah. nemesis um in terms of other design choices i really like the makeup job on saru it is really well done. Like, mm -hmm. it looks it looks like it's got to be some kind of mix of um, prosthesis and some CGI work, but it's a really subtle hand. Um, it really is just like um, I'm sure it's like some coloring and like I assume that little like gill thing is a is a post production add on, but it they, it is just lightly enough manipulated to not feel like this poor man had to act in front of a green screen all day. Well, and they're giving him these like hooves on his his boots, and uh, you know these sort of long fingers, but not in the pen pals kind of way. Yeah. Uh, so it it adds to the alienness, uh, but not in a way that pulls you out of the story. So yeah, it's a good job on, on that score. Um, the space effects were all pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I I do like. I do kind of wonder why Lorca's ready room was the way it was. <laughs> it it looked like 
it looked kind of like 10 forward except for one guy yeah i get that i get that it's not it's not it's not an office yeah it just seems strange um so that was the one miss as a set for me um Uh, all the other ones were were pretty solid hits for me as far as yeah we've talked about the uniforms a little I don't dislike them. They feel like the connection line is more to Enterprise's jumpsuits than TOS's, um, you know, go-go boots. Um, I don't... I'll say it's... a. As far as I can tell, there are only two division colors. There seem to be the, like, silver sparkly panels and the gold sparkly panels, right? There's a bronze, too. And that's... that's it's a fatal mistake. Putting gold and bronze as two of your divisions, it's like... They just don't read visually differently enough. It's just, it's a horrible decision. So I, I agree that the jumpsuits look okay, like they're sleek and interesting looking, but they fail to do what good uniforms in Star Trek do, which is give you a sense of the organization that you're in, right? Yeah. I can't read, I have really good eyesight, Kevin. And I can't tell what fucking rank people are. Oh, I don't even know? know where the rank insignia are. I've I've given up looking. The rank insignia are little, infinitesimally tiny dots on the badge. Oh. Um. And don't get me wrong, I would love to have like silver slimming side panels into all of my work clothes, <laughs> but it that yeah. that's a lot of bling for a for an office. Um. I I don't even mind the bling. They just should have made it like sort of metallic red, metallic yellow, metallic blue, like something that I could just... Yeah, I, I had, I had no idea that there were bronze in there. Like, I just thought it was yeah. like some... Like, at worst, it was like a gold uniform was standing in shadow. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what it looks like, and that's the problem, right? Yeah. Who, what, who had that meeting and was like, oh, yeah, gold, silver, bronze, let's do it, right? It, this um, is happening at the same time as the Enterprise under Captain Pike is exploring the universe. I mean, I've just resigned myself to the fact that both personally and in Star Trek, I prefer a more minimalist aesthetic. Like part of the appeal of the Star Trek uniforms in their previous iterations is they are largely, you know, clean lines, large color blocking, not a lot of, you know, doodah. Um, so yeah, it's just, I've, I, 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 I have resigned myself to be like, well, the world has changed and people just have different expectations and aesthetics now. And, um, I just have to wait until I'm old enough for mine to make a comeback. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's an irritating design choice that fails to serve the story. Okay. That's my issue with it. I, I got over the enterprise uniforms very quickly, you know? Okay. It's jumpsuits. They got pockets but there's still a pipe of color and there's still a visible rank insignia, you know? And so that helps me situate myself and situate the characters and understand who they are and what their relationships are to each other. Uh, These uniforms completely fail to do that. I don't know who's in science. I don't know who's in command. I don't, you know, and I don't know what rank anybody is because it's fucking invisible. You can't goddamn tell. Okay. They can, of course, change the uniforms, but I doubt they're going to do it in the first 15 episodes. No, right? no, certainly not. So I guess we just have to live with it. Uh, well, so we've discussed writing, acting, 
and production values. Is there anything else production-wise that stuck out to you? Um, setting the chase itself aside, I really liked the um, nuts and bolts of their, you know, Event Horizon alien, you know, pick your sci-fi horror movie. They like, was it? Oh, what was it like? You know, homage verging on plagiarism. Sure. Um, but they did it well. It was like competently executed horror movie. And I found the effects like sufficiently gruesome without being like disgusted to the point. It wasn't like I was more disgusted when Alice Eve got her leg broken by Benedict Cumberbatch and into darkness, if that makes sense, because that felt yeah. truly gratuitous. Um, no, I, I didn't. I, I liked the effect on the uh, contorted bodies. Uh I found the atmospherics veering a little close to the sort of stroby, annoying shit that I, that I hate <laughs> basically everywhere. Uh, it, it, it's just, speaking of lazy shorthands for things, it's like making everything dark and having one light blink. Fuck that, <laughs> you know? Fuck that. I don't like it. Uh, The only thing that killed me, the one thing that killed me in the engineering set, um, which I otherwise liked fine, was only, and it it, it happens outside of sci-fi too, no one works on a clear Lucite board. It would be impossible to, like, it looks cool on House when he writes down his differential diagnosis with like a silver Sharpie on a piece of clear glass because it gives the audience a fun look at it it would be impossible to read because every time the people you're talking to moved or whatever the surface on which you're reading words would alter and you'd have to read them again like i cannot imagine trying to read illuminated text on a clear lucite panel while coding of all things like your eyes would constantly be readjusting not to the just to the new things on your screen but the variegated background going on behind them it would be ridiculous like it's one of those things that looks cool on tv but when you think about it makes no sense as an actual piece of technology i suppose there could be some difference in opacity for the character on the other side but yeah i agree yeah it's just, it's, it's just one of those like little... you like we like none of the panels we assume on the enterprise on the on the galaxy class starship had haptic feedback because that wasn't a thing when this when that show was on so it always felt like this seems like a hard panel to just do your work on but i can let it go people can read anything but it's like this just it's just like ooh. It just it, it's just one of those little choices where it's like part of what will make me love your Star Trek more is the little detail work you do to make it feel like a real place. And in many other places, they did. The ship was full of extras. The mess hall was full of people. Uh, like 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 the the quiet background stuff that indicated this was a real place full of people all doing a job for eight hours a day was there. It's little stuff like that that just drives me crazy. It's it's just it was like that little thing that just snagged my eye in the wrong way. I gotta say the sound design, uh, I mean, with the exception of how it smashed dialogue, the the sound effects, uh, you know, they would, speaking of fan service, you know, they had a lot of little subtle touches, you know, uh, sensor pings and, you know, like those kind of sounds that almost unconsciously, you know, call a fan, you know, and remind a fan of TOS or TNG or whatever, right? Uh, so I was really pleased by, you know, the the obviously conscious decision on the part of the sound designers to to do things in a way that would make it feel comfortable uh, for a fan. Uh, and I did. I felt 
generally comfortable when there wasn't like a fungus revolution going on or a monster chase uh you know like it felt like star trek it even felt like star trek during the fungus thing but uh you know during the monster chase that was a little a little far for me so overall personally i think i'm on a three for this uh it's got really good aspects, but it's got really questionable aspects, and they sort of balance out. See, I'm kind of, I think I'm, it, this just makes it into the four. I loved Burnham's speech and kind of Burnham's whole arc this episode and stuff like her interactions with Saru so much that I feel like the show has done such a good job of establishing her character in a way that justifies and isn't like, it makes sense. Like, if you just showed me this show giving equal time to all of the crew members with a neck and neck second place with Saru, it makes sense to me that Burnham is the centerpiece character and the character work there was really good. The effects were good. I liked the design of the Discovery, save a few small technical details. I think this just makes it into a four. I feel like I'm where you were last week because um, we've literally flipped scores where I was just like, I think the things that intrigued me intrigued me enough to just eke out the, the, the kind of ongoing problems we seem to... See, or yeah. issues I'll call them issues I'll be I'll be I'll be optimistic and call them issues not problems so yeah I, I think this just makes it into a four for me yeah I'm, I'm at a three because the monster chase really dragged me out you know it, it kind of ruined that feeling I was getting and then the fungus drive just you know mystified me and annoyed me and then the, the sort of cherry on that sort of why the fuck is this a prequel cake was the Amanda, you know, mention at the end. Uh, you know, it's just like, why are you making these problems for yourself? Uh, I watched it with Kelly and actually she was <laughs> really reacting kind of violently to the, the prequelitis problems. You know, I was laughing at her because, you know, of course I feel the same way, but I didn't expect her to be. <laughs> such a stickler she's just like why is this a prequel why is this a prequel you know why are they calling out amanda why do they they just said it fucking after voyager you know and yeah i mean it's totally right i wonder how many people feel that way you know yeah i i wonder if the way they're going about it alienates certain groups or if it endang- they're in danger of alienating certain groups, right? Um, you know, I think Enterprise alienated some long-term fans because those fans sensed the inherent problems. It's like, no, you can't have a fucking Ferengi episode. You can't have a Borg episode. It, you know, that's against the rules. You can't do that, you know? And yet they did, right? Um and then they didn't do the things the fans wanted you know it's like the Klingon war the Romulan war like you know actually get at that stuff like that would be interesting um so yeah I mean I, it's it's well, a real mix, it's a mixed bag for me yeah I'm thinking back to something um I said I think when the first Abrams movie came out which was I would put up with a lot of continuity bending if the if the core of a show was there because i think the kind of popular response to fan outrage at the especially the 2009 one which for itself like if it were called anything other than star trek literally anything 
Star Trek 2009 would be easily be comfortably enjoyable popcorn fare because you're only setting yourself up to have to answer questions that that movie couldn't by calling yourself Star Trek. So my point at the time was, if the core Star Trekness were there, I would let go of so much else, even like the hairdryer engines. I could forgive or at least look over as a price of admission to having new good Star Trek in my life. And I think I can say with a straight face, three episodes in, the core Star Trek stuff is there in an active way. It is not mere lip surface. It is not just a speech here and there. I believe the writers are consciously trying to engage some kind of story about the morality and complexity of the Federation as portrayed over the last 50 years. And if my biggest problem, and I can say this as a pretty big nerd, but if my biggest problems with this show boil down to a clunkily executed connection to prequel canon and subpar uniforms, I'll live. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree that at least currently it is still Star Trek. <laughs> so I'm still there. I'm still feeling that feeling. This episode just had a few missteps for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious where it'll go. I'm I'm happy that as far as I can tell from the previews, they will be dealing with the creature in the next episode, which I'd rather they do because if it's one thing I know you I know you hate it too. It's it's that kind of lost syndrome where an obvious mystery or an obvious question is not pursued in an organic way to maintain an artificial sense of mystery and to, to just get to the twist. If they're dealing with, if Burnham knows this creature's on board in the next episode, that would militate against the idea that they are just going to keep it there as some like ace in the hole for whenever they choose to reveal it as a twist. So I remain, I, I've been in a state of cautious optimism, which since the election is the best emotion I can do. Um, yeah. Three episodes in a row. And hey, there were times where DS9 and Voyager didn't inspire cautious optimism three episodes in a row. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I will say though, um, for both of those series, like I, I never had a deep foreboding about whether the Star Trekness would just end, you know, like I certainly worried that the, the series would just be crap, <laughs> but I, they, they never threatened to diminish or remove the thing that I cared most about, which was the universe. This is a place I want to live, right? I don't know if I want to live in Discovery's universe just yet, but I can at least recognize it. I can, you know, same with Enterprise. Like, for all of Enterprise's flaws, it was still Star Trek, you know? And so we're still there. We're still there with Discovery, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, you know? We'll see if they, they have created some big problems for themselves and that's the that's the thing that like it was it was to, to borrow a sports metaphor which i i do once a year so here it is it was an unforced error there yes. was nothing commanding you other than your own bizarre misreading of what fans like as fan service that made you put it in this spot it's not even like like if you wanted to tell the story of the first romulan war if that was what was on your spirit to tell well, then you have to do a prequel because that's when the Romulan War happened. So it's not like this. At no idea they've had yet commanded they do it then. Because if you had said it 100 years in the future, even for the character stuff with Burnham, had it just been any other Vulcan, 
Tuvok's grandkid. I don't care. Um, yeah. All of this would have worked the same. All of it. Um, you know, by the way, that the, the real ace in the hole is young Spock. Yeah, that's... Uh... And it's going to be horrible if and when they feel they have to go there. You know... Well, because what would he be? He wouldn't be young Spock. He'd be Spock. He'd, he's on the shouldn't <laughs> he should be on Pike's Enterprise right now, shouldn't he? Yeah, basically, yeah. Okay, here's here's a question, and it'll be the last. I think the last thing I uh, the, just a thought experiment for us. What if, um, the, at some, to introduce Spock, they simply run in to Pike's Enterprise, but it is a. Uh, stylistic redesign to bring that enterprise in line with Discovery's aesthetic. So, like, the way I always read Klingons until Enterprise's Augment story was that Klingons always looked the way they did in TNG. It was more of just a practical concession to what could and could not be done on the budget at the time, but that inside the four walls of the story... um, everything looked consistent kind of like when they change actors for a character midstream you know it's like it's not like anyone in the story would go well you look different now it would just be like the like inside the four walls of the story it's the same person like like i don't think harry potter ever walked into dumbledore's office and said wow richard harris you look different today you, you, you know what i mean yes so um, if they just reissued pike's enterprise and the constitution class enterprise to fit discovery's aesthetic would that resolve a lot of the prequel problems because I think a lot of our problems tend to be the discovery is not just stylistically different it seems substantially more capable than the, what the original series depicted the Federation as but again that wasn't the commandments of the stories most of the time that was just a concession to the real life budget of, of Paramount so if they solve that by just saying pretend the Enterprise looked like this the whole time would you accept that and would that kind of solve at least some of the prequel issues I'm going to say no um, I get what you're saying, but I don't, I feel like what they have to do is to scrupulously avoid the Enterprise and scrupulously avoid Spock and that whole thing, which of course they've already, you know, veered dangerously close to, uh, TOS, the original series movies, TNG, these things are beloved, okay? Not ju- not just liked, not just mildly enjoyed, but beloved to the point of people theming their weddings after them, you know? You, you can't redo them. It, it's kind of like how Smallville was with Superman, you know? You shouldn't be showing Superman on the show. The producers of the show knew that. Now, doing the prequel puts you in a box, and the show lasted too long, right? Like, now Tom Welling is like 30, (laughs) and he should be fucking Superman already. But if we do that, then it's not the same show anymore. It's not Smallville anymore, okay? It's not about that place and that time. If you, you know, go there. And so I feel like, Enterprise did a good thing in some ways by distancing themselves from TOS, making it its own thing. Okay. Uh, now, of course, 
the thing in Enterprise that's you know a little different is that it had those two mirror episodes, uh, which were by far the best mirror episodes since the original in TOS, and there is no reason it, we have video evidence that recreating the look and the feel of TOS is not fatal to enjoyment of a show okay I do think changing the look and feel of TOS would be fatal to enjoying some sort of mashup between Discovery and TOS okay because it would just it would offend the people who love that thing it would perplex people who don't love that thing the stories would make no sense to people who aren't invested in it, and they would just piss off the people who are. So I feel like they should avoid it. They should, they should never... Sh- if they're going to show the Enterprise on screen, it should only be on the view screen or something. And it should be a perfect, wonderful CGI representation of the true TOS design. You know? And they could even they can they can hang a lampshade on it and say, "Wow, here's the next evolution in starship design." You know, it's a lot more streamlined, isn't it? And that you know that could be the end of it, right? But I don't I don't even think they should go there. Yeah, I'm just curious that's, how that's, it that's would. That's my feeling. I, they, it, it's like we're orbiting a black hole, and every time they mention some member of Spock's family, I feel us tipping closer to the event horizon of yeah. that phenomena and. Because if nothing else, to even even at the height of DS9, like TNG, DS9, and Voyager ran overlapping for many, many years. And they shared stories, they shared characters sometimes, but they were always their own discrete units. I think with... with I can't really think of an exception. I mean, like the Dura sisters in that early episode of DS9 didn't set my world on fire, but didn't break the world. Um, Quark's appearance on TNG was funny. Um, the handful, like Q, while not reaching the sort of philosophical heights of his work on TNG, was never a bad presence on Voyager. Like, to the extent that they did those kind of crossover things, it helped establish the kind of size of the universe, but it never destroyed the notion that they were three distinct shows in three distinct places. Like, like Voyager didn't decide to get home through the Gamma Quadrant uh, and run into the Dominion War, which, you know, would have... Made the made it feel too subordinate to DS 9s story. So like, that's my my cons- Yeah, like, let me put it this way, Kevin. Why was these are the voyages so offensive? Well, because it one it made it made Enterprise's finale not about Enterprise and more crit and I suppose more critically for me, um, it ju- it rewrote an extant story that was perfect in and of itself. It added a narrative fulcrum to Pegasus that wasn't portrayed in Pegasus in a way that, like, the interesting point in Pegasus is Riker on the bridge. This is it. Now or never. You must disclose now. What are you going to do? And he does. That's why he's a good officer. That's why he's a good man, ultimately. If he had already decided, like, two hours earlier in the holodeck, what was he sitting on? He He decided in the holodeck Enterprise mess hall to tell Picard... Why didn't he just go? Why wouldn't he just get on a turbo lift, knock on his ready room door and say, here's all the beans. I'm spilling them liberally. It, it changes the episode that they showed me already. And okay. I, so, so 
how can any interaction between Discovery and the TOS Enterprise not be that, is my question. I, I can maybe envision, you know, like an eye of a needle pathway to do it so that you don't fuck things up. But the paths for fucking things up are much wider and much easier to slip down. I, I like your analogy, you know, to an event horizon. They're really playing with fire here, you know, and they are going to get burned if they try to get too close. They, they just need to stay away. They need to stay away because only a perfect, perfect, perfect job could do it in a way that doesn't piss me off and I assume piss off lots of other fans because I know a lot of fans were pissed off by these are the voyages and so I assume that at le they're pissed off for at least some of the same reasons that you and I are pissed off it was also just mean to make Marina Sirtis wear that uniform she's an attractive woman and she's fought like a like a hero against the you know kind of natural stoutness of Greek women as they enter midlife but she doesn't look... I don't look like I did 10 years ago. I assume you and don't. Jonathan oh, my God. The punch. The punch. It's like... Yeah. Like, it, it was just like... It's a horrible idea. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. Like... If you can't do it perfectly, don't do it. Like, even if you had said it in, like, post-Voyager so they could at least be their own ages, it still would have been ham-fisted, but it wouldn't have been as mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the... The Voyager appearances of Marina Sirtis were delightful. Delightful. Why? Because it's new information about her going forward. It's not trying to shoehorn in a bunch of shit that for some reason wasn't mentioned before. You know? It, it is so, weird. They don't trust us to not get scared. Like, like it, unless they're... like, And maybe, they, maybe someone... Like, don't... I mean, in the interest of fairness, I'm I'm capable of looking at issues from all sides. I do recall seeing that some of the criticism of TNG was merely that it did not have Kirk and Spock, and that by virtue of not having Kirk and Spock, it was not Star Trek. So maybe someone got like really emotionally scarred by that experience in the Paramount production office, and assumes all fans are like that, because that's the only explanation. I, I feel like it's just craven you know, covetousness of money. You know, I, I agree that they're worried that it, if it doesn't have familiar shit, people are just going to tune out, right? Well, you know what, guys? It's been proven time and time again that new shit is actually successful. And if anything's going to fuck you, it's your distribution model. Dumb fucks, right? <laughs> it's like they lost the forest for the trees here. It's like... Well, the Abrams movies were uh, moderately financially successful, you know, compared to the competition, you know, in, in the field. So let's just do that. And then I feel like Brian Fuller and maybe Joe Minoski or somebody like pushed for continuity, right? And somehow won that battle, somehow got it put, pushed through. But, you know, Fuller's gone. I don't know how much of a say Minoski has in the show, you know, or if it's all this fucking, like, Kurtzman shit brains. Um, and so it's, uh, somebody fought the good fight, and now they're stuck in continuity without knowing how to do it. We'll see. I hope I'm wrong, you know? 
but I hope they don't go there. I, I hope we never see the Enterprise. <laughs> I hope we never see Pike. I pray that we never see Spock. You know, I just, ugh. it's not going to end well. I don't see how it could. Yeah. All right. I, I feel this is, this is a conversation we are going to revisit, I think, every episode. Uh, but though, speaking of cautious optimism, hey, look, we got uh, two podcasts two weeks in a row contemporaneous with the uh, release of the episode. And I, I, I feel that's a... Uh, that that that's good momentum. Um, so we're uh, hope so we'll be keeping it up, and we'll be here for uh, episode four of Discovery's first season. Do we have a title yet? I don't know if I've seen the title. Um, let's see. Context is for kings. I wonder if Memory Alpha has it. Let's see. Produced. The butcher's knife cares not. For the lambs cry. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah, we're really digging into those like metaphor titles. <laughs> hey, that's cool. I mean, it, as long as they back it up with something, right? I feel like the idea was here for this episode. Uh, I will see if these butchers' knives and lambs' cries are present in episode four. Uh, you know, the writing has been pretty taut, so hey, maybe it'll all work out. I just, you know, I feel like my whole fandom has evolved to sense the coming of death. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Well done there. All right. And I sense it now. Are, are the little prongs in your cranial ridge standing up? Yeah, they are. Definitely. All right. Well, peace and long life. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming we all make it to next week, we will see you for our next podcast. Yep. <laughs> Night, everyone. Good night.